Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. We are focusing in this series on the topic of succession as it is commonly known. Uh, Those that have listened to the show for a while will know I prefer the term continuity planning, but typically it seems to be referred to as succession planning. Uh, We cover that a little bit in uh, these coming uh, episodes um, and uh, I think there's some very good arguments made for renaming it or reframing it as either continuity or transition planning rather than succession. Um, This episode is part one of a two-part discussion with four fantastic guests. So I'm joined by Dennis Jaffe, by Ken McCracken, Daniel Tremarki and Stacey Allred. Now they introduce themselves at the beginning of this episode but we split the interview into two because it was uh, a long and detailed conversation. So um, part two will be released very shortly. This episode um, introduces the paper that they have uh, co-authored and collaborated on, and it's a fantastic paper. We're going to link it up in the show notes, but um, it has come about through the work that uh, all four do within the Ultra High Net Worth Institute, which is something that I've mentioned quite a few times on the show. I'm fortunate enough to be part of their advisory board and faculty, and uh, the work that they are doing is absolutely fantastic. So I suggest you check them out. The website is uhnwinstitute.org. And as well as the link in the show notes, there is also a link in uh, on that homepage to the white paper that has been authored by my guests this week. As ever, if you haven't done so already, please head over to fanbizpodcast.com and join the newsletter mailing list. I send out a monthly newsletter with some thoughts and links to various useful uh, topics in there. So if you want to receive that, please do go over and sign up. So as I say, this is part one. Part two will follow shortly. Uh, I'm sure you will enjoy it. It's a fantastic, uh, engaging conversation with four fantastic guests. So I'll hand over to that interview now uh, and enjoy. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. I am joined by not one, not two, not three, but four guests on today's show. And we are going to be talking about the topic of reimagining family business transitions. Now, my guests on the show this week have co-authored a paper together, which we'll be referring to throughout the show. 
Um, and the first uh, thing I would like to do is have our guests introduce themselves. So we have Dennis Jaffe, Ken McCracken, Daniel Tremarkey, and Stacey Allred. So Dennis, if you could kick us off with an intro into who you are, what you do, a bit of background for our audience who may not have heard you before, and then we can go around the room and uh, introduce ourselves. I think like a lot of people in this, this kind of complex field, um, uh, we have um, several um, uh, origins in terms of how we got into it. So I started out my career uh, way back as a family therapist, and uh, I did that for a while, and I decided that I didn't want to be a therapist, I didn't want to sit in an office, and I got a, um, a business degree and uh, became a sociologist and worked in organizational change. And um, I was happily doing organizational change, and I got invited to a meeting before um, uh, this field even existed of people to say, well, maybe there should be a field of family business. And so I kind of wandered in because I had this background in family and um, basically um, you know, found my calling. Um, and I've been doing it uh, ever since now. It's been about um, 40 years and, and, um, uh, since the field began and I've been in it. Uh, my work is with, you know, kind of how to combine family and business. Family is a, one kind of a social system and business and organization is another kind of um, social system. And the challenges of family businesses, both of them are together. So I've been working with larger and larger families um, and working all over the world. And my work now is with, um, uh, you know, with, with large global families that have many generations and are dealing with the complexities of switching generations, of balancing the family and keeping the family kind of uh, connected and building um, a sense of family connection and also um, managing the diversification of, um, of wealth uh, beyond just a single business into um, a number of different family enterprises. And I'll, I'll pick it up from there, Russ, if that's okay. Um... Ken McCracken. I'm an independent family business consultant. I live in Scotland and work now mainly in the United Kingdom and Ireland, although previously I've worked in the uh, in other parts of the world. I can't get anywhere near the longevity of Dennis, but I've been in and around the field since about the mid-1990s, and that happened because the first university-based education programme for family businesses in the United Kingdom was in Scotland. So that was my good fortune and I have thoroughly enjoyed doing the work since then, which has been with families going through transitions, helping them to establish effective governance and then helping them to implement those type of arrangements. And it's a great joy and pleasure as it is to work with my colleagues here and to be part of your show. I'll um, follow on from Ken. So Daniel Tremarkey here, and it's it's great to be back on the podcast and, and joining everyone today. And I think, Russ, we've, we've spoken over the years across a few different countries and within my roles. So after nearly 14 years with, with KPMG, um, I've relocated back to Australia. Um, so I spent the last three and a half years in our Canadian practice, uh, leading on family dynamics and governance and Prior to that, uh, three years in the UK, uh, alongside another one of today's panelists. So, my day-to-day -day role is is working within our family business practice, working with high net wealth families, family offices, 
um, similar to what Dennis mentioned, that relationship between the family and the wealth. Um, and it makes today's topic one of, of special interest and something that, that I see a lot of in business families. And so how we can provide um, process and framework and bring structure to what is often a, a very unstructured conversation, uh, helping families manage that complexity and that change is, is where I spend most of my time. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I'm also part of our global center of excellence for family business. So able to connect with colleagues around the world, um, looking at the tools and resources that, that we develop and the thought leadership um, similar to what we're talking about here today. So it's been a, a great journey, but even just listening to, to Ken and Dennis and, and Stacey to follow um, the, the novice with only 14, 15 years in the field so far. And Stacy Allred here, uh, rounding out this very esteemed panel, and just to say it's been so much fun to collaborate and, and work on this topic together. I started off with a pretty traditional career, master's in tax. I was in public accounting with EY and uh, did that for nine years. And then I found myself in San Francisco at the height of the dot-com. And for the first time in my career, my clients weren't my father's age, but my age and younger. And we just had this explosion of financial capital being created, uh, what felt like, you know, very rapidly. And I kept getting all these qualitative questions around what impact uh, does my wealth have on the motivation of my 22 and 25 year old? It was that particular question one day that I threw up my arms and said, enough's enough. If I want to be helpful, I better start to figure out these questions and cold called wealth psychologists. So my life got a lot more exciting, needless to say. And from then in working with families of success have found my way into the family business field. And really appreciate the significance and the challenge of going through transitions of our topic today, a real moment that matters. So thank you, Russ, for having us. Thank you. And first comment on uh, from, from my perspective is what a fantastic group of collaborators. It's, it's an example of our ability within the field to be able to collaborate, collaborate across different countries across different backgrounds in terms of how we got to, to being in the field so uh, you guys are setting a great example um, and hopefully many more to, to come on uh, that side of things as well now as we mentioned you've collaborated on a paper together and the focus of that is the topic of day, today's conversation which is reimagining family business transitions you talk about in that paper i've had the the um, benefit of having a, a kind of a preview of it and, and I've had a read of it and it, it's fantastic. We'll link it up in the show notes. But you speak about challenging some of the assumptions that are linked to transitions. Firstly, how did you come to be collaborating together, given that you're in different places uh, in the world? And secondly, what are some of the assumptions you are looking to challenge? So, well, I think that this white paper has been a product of various associations that we each have with the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. And so um, for those that, that aren't familiar, as a, a not-for-profit think tank um, and learning exchange, the Institute is uh, a group of individuals and associations that are really looking to elevate the wealth management industry to a new standard. 
and it's something that we've each had various connections with and and something that started a lot of these conversations so I, I think back to our initial conversation Stacy and I had probably over a year ago now um, and we started talking about the process of managing transitions within business families and how that has continued to evolve over the years and we found that it was a multitude of, of various models and frameworks and components often intertwined within different processes um, and I think back to, to Stacy quoting I think George Box at the time where all models are wrong but some are useful uh, and that that kind of prompted us to think about how do we pick apart the transitions process? Um, and as you mentioned, some of the assumptions and the myths that are, are built into that process. And so the power of, of that collaboration that you were mentioning kind of spurred us to keep the conversation going. And, and we had the, the privilege and honor of, of Dennis and Ken joining that discussion. And I think from there, we were able to collectively isolate the the focus of this white paper being the the disproportionate focus on the next gen within the transition process and we wanted to address that assumption that just because the senior generation may be well established and experienced in their roles um, it's often assumed that they require minimal support in the transition and so the white paper really helped us sharpen that focus on the senior generation and the specific support that they need in order to facilitate their own personal transitions, um, as well as those of their family and the business. And you can see that through the, the rethink, rebalance and reinvent kind of framework that we've used within the white paper. Fantastic. And d does anybody want to add into um, that particular uh, question on, on the, the impact of some of those assumptions when we're working on transitions, if there is an over-focus on, say, the needs of the, the rising generation uh, and perhaps less emphasis placed on um, the senior gen, what are some of the outcomes that you've perhaps seen as a result of that? Well, um, I think we, we've had wonderful conversations and I think that the paper... Um, it, it, it's wonderful that a paper exists out of it because we've had so many discussions. And um, I think there were two really um, uh, energizing and, and challenging um, things that we uh, started to, to think about. And um, the first one is that everybody, um, the elders are always talking about um, how do we uh, have responsible kids and how do we create the next generation. And uh, we were saying, well, gee, um, that's how the, 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 the older generation looks and points out to the kids and say, that, that's the problem. And if you ask the kids what the problem is, they say, you know, dad doesn't want to change. And so each group is kind of pointing the finger outside. And um, our experience is we want people to take responsibility for their own roles. So we wanted to look at the elder um, generation and, and, and the challenge that they have, which is that um, uh, that you know, moving into uh, um, transition is for them a major change. It's something they've done all their life and um, they have to step back and define a new role. And um, when you've been successful, um, you're used to not changing and you're used to saying, I am, I am it. And, and the idea of uh, transition is something that, that you do not welcome and you do not um, want. So we, 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 we were really um, challenged to say, what do we do 
for the older generation to help them get used to the fact that they have as big a transition as their children have. The, the second thing, um, and which I'm certainly an example of, is the fact that um, this is the first generation in history that basically um, lives this long. And instead of um, you know, seeing yourself as, as old <laughs> at, at 60 or 65, which was the, you know, what we learned, grew up as the uh, age of retirement, now uh, careers, and particularly when you own the business, can go into your 70s and 80s. And I'm, I'm working many, many years beyond the time that I ever thought I would be working. And I'm still looking ahead to the future. And um, that generation, it, it's kind of like I call that the bonus career. We all have a bonus generation and a bonus career to work. But that poses a challenge into family. And the challenge is, is that you're, you're, if you continue working, your children are then into your 50s, their 50s and 60s, and your grandchildren are adults. And even your great-grandchildren are starting to appear. And so we wanted to look at the process of transition and say, what do we do about the fact that it, it's really nice for us to say, hey, we can continue working into our 80s. What does that do for our family? So we were looking at longevity. We were looking at the elder generation, not pointing their finger and saying, oh, my kids need to be responsible, but how can I make this happen? And, and that's the foundation um, uh, of, of this paper that we, we've come up with. Yeah, Ross, I'll, I'll throw in another couple of thoughts here. Um, I think it's established that the millennial generation have had a higher f level of formal education than their predecessors, which has been advanced by the plethora of next generation programs and courses that are available, which is a good thing. But on that basis, they must be the most ready generation that there has ever existed in the family business history. Um, so adding more to their knowledge is good, but are we significantly moving the dial in terms of affecting transitions? Uh, I mean, you start looking at the broader demographic realities of these families, you know, people move in and out of relationships more than they did historically. There are blended families, there are families in which there could be a, effectively a generation between people that would refer to themselves as siblings. So the old sort of idea of succession or transitions involving the senior and the next generation is just obsolete and it is much more complex and much more interesting and in the paper we're just trying to say let's get to grips with some of these things and not just say let's send the next gen on another course that is helpful but there is much more to be discussed and we need to do that with a degree of rigor and creativity that maybe has been somewhat lacking yeah, and, and taking both of those points and, and looking at a, a very public example, a very recent public example of, of both the longevity element and the, the blended um, kind of um, families, I, I can't help but think of the, the royal family in terms of the, the Queen's recent passing and, you know, Prince King Charles, as he is now, um, was effectively a rising gen uh, at the, the age of 73. And then if you extrapolate out that, that life expectancy again, then William's going to be into his 70s before he's looking at um, his time. And I guess that's a, a useful public example of what you're seeing amongst family businesses. I mean, the royal family is, I think, a, a family business of, of sorts. So is that a useful kind of uh, 
real life example of the some of the topics that you've been exploring in the paper well we were i, I mean looking at looking at at, at that um uh, a lot of um before the queen passed um we would point to prince charles as saying look at that he has to wait um through his entire um you know kind of uh, prime of life um to um you know move into a position of uh, of leadership and um it must be tremendously stressful and um and, and that's we used to talk about the the the, the prince charles problem of uh, being in, in between the two generations and um uh that in the royal family there's only one leadership role but in a family business there are many roles that can uh, be taken and, and there are many paths and um, i think that, that the challenge that harry is facing is about what what is his role going to be and, and what is his life going to be like and and it's it's very troubled um but um you know i think uh, we need to look at the fact that uh, um, the older generation has to consider the needs of the younger generations um and um, what they're going to do with their lives and and uh, um, not just expect them to wait um they have to do something productive um or they're going to wither um and and you know become bitter but 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 on that too dennis the next generation have to consider the needs of the senior generation which as you correctly pointed out yeah are experiences that have never arisen at any time in human history because people are living longer so given that the only workable transition plan will be one that works for everyone we have a vested interest if you want to put it that way or we have an altruistic concern if you want to put it that way for the needs of others and not just promoting our own individual aspirations dreams or whatever you want to call them and i think that's something that we talked a lot about and kind of appears in the paper that broadening the the discussion that way and not not looking upon it as well i have my individual aspirations then i have my duties no you have your individual aspirations and then you have a humane concern for the people you love so we're trying to figure out how we can elevate that conversation and hopefully in doing so that leads to more creativity and the old jet the old solutions don't work because this is a completely unique situation so we're in a way uh, improvising and, and and devising um paths forward indeed yeah and, and Stacey, in terms of, uh, again, you covered this within the uh, white paper, but the, the key areas, there's obviously lots of moving parts with, with a transition, but w what are some of the key areas that families really need to gain clarity on sort of before and during those transition processes? So Russ, at a really kind of high level, we're looking at strategy and to really simplify strategy, it's looking at where are we now, where, what can we do, what should we do, what will we do, and how will we get there? And the thing that really holds transitions back in our experience, it, it, from the viewpoint of the senior leader, is not having a really clear North Star on purpose, their why, and what that vibrant next chapter looks like. And so, you know, and this is kind of woven throughout the, the paper, but through that process, really getting clarity, there's the saying that you can get through any how if you're clear on the why. And one question that I like to ask that, you know, just kind of uh, 
simplifies and cuts through is to ask the senior leader, if you had gone through your transition, right, from the, the company, and you were sitting at lunch with a good friend, and the good friend asks you, how was the transition? What would you like to be able to re respond? And then also to look at it from the lens of different family members. If your spouse or partner was at lunch with the good friend and they asked you, how was the transition? What would you like for them to be able to respond? And the same for the rising gen. So what that does is it gets you up to kind of appreciating the system's nature of this, the impact that it has on the entire system, and starting to explore how do you bring the best version of yourself to the process to engage in something that is really hard and meaningful and important and this real moment that matters. And so we just suggest before getting into like all of the detail, take that time to really figure out that North Star and in particular, do not discount the value of having a, you know, a plan for that vibrant next chapter as part of that overall process. And that can be quite a, it's quite a straightforward question, but it's quite a complicated thought process for people to go through if it's not something they're used to doing, right? If, if it's something where their um, identity, what they do, it has been laid out for, for 40 years, for example, to then to be asked to sit down and go through that, that question of what you would like this to look like, take some thought. It's not a kind of a tick box. Is, is that right? Yes, you want to build in time for plenty of diffuse thinking for, and that's one of the things, this is getting into another topic, but when transitions go well versus, you know, kind of the, the, the chaos, it's that you've left that time. You've really honored the process and you've done the deep work and deeper thinking and having a guide, uh, you know, some supporters, some cheerleaders, some thinking partners along that journey can be incredibly helpful. And, and it brings me on to another topic that you mentioned in the um, paper around self-reflection and, and perhaps a bit of time looking in the mirror and understanding um, yourself. How would you describe the importance of self-reflection as, as part of a transition process? Well, I mean, I, I think it builds off a lot of what Stacey was just mentioning there. I think that that sense of clarity is often coming from a sense of self-reflection and, and self-reflection in all facets of life is very powerful. That introspection, I mean, it can be equally objective and subjective, um, but really what it's looking to do is create that self-awareness on your thoughts, your attitudes, your behaviours. Um, and that's not just to help understand the impact it has on you, but the impact that it has on others. So knowing when and how to let go can be a very difficult point. And for a lot of senior family members to engage in the process of letting go, I think this self-reflection is vital to generate that personal motivation. Um, there needs to be that belief that it's the right thing to do. Um, and to the earlier conversation, is that the right thing to do for me, the individual, or is that the right thing to do for us as a system? And so by looking at those individual and collective benefits, I think that's where 
we're seeing self-reflection play a role. Um, and I think my last point on that as well is it's a skill. It's something that needs to be practiced. It's not something that comes naturally to everyone. Um, so it's not to say that it's something you can just switch on, but something that you need to focus and, and work hard at. I'd like to add something to that, if I could, Russ, which is an element of judgment and criticism in in that process. And I'm going to call an aid a 300-year-old Scotsman called Adam Smith, born 1723, <laughs> famous for the wealth of nations. But Smith, you know, there's lots of good ideas that are not new ideas. And he created this idea of an impartial spectator, somebody that we can create in our imagination that is endowed with characteristics that we want to have. So to, to Stacey's point, you know, that person looks like the person we would like to become, but that, that doesn't just sort of float off into the ether. That is a person whose praise you seek and whose criticism you dread. So when you're going through the hard work of doing the transition, that person should be sat on your shoulders, praising what you do well and reminding you of the things that are not going so well. So the self-reflection is, a, to me, it's about the person I want to become and making that tangible and vivid enough to actually start influencing the behaviours and how you act now. And if other people are aware of that, they can help by keeping you in lane when you stray and giving you congratulations when you succeed in becoming that person. And I think in a group, if we're all trying to do that, um well that's quite powerful i think it must be very challenging well i know it's very challenging because i do this with clients so I, I i know it's really really hard and particularly when the person someone would like to become is not something that someone else likes and they go oh i didn't see that coming i thought for example the next gen so i thought you'd be around for another 10 years and the senior just said well actually i was aiming to be out of here in 24 months so uh, and doing lots of other things that would be meaningful to me to give purpose to the rest of my life. So, but that conversation it just shoots forward when you use that technique of getting beyond who you are now and imagining what you would like to become, and then using that as a a very very practical benchmark. It's not woo woo this stuff. This is putting stuff out there that says you use this and you will move forward, and if you don't, you will be judged and held to account. Yeah, and to to help with that, if if people are listening and that's resonating, but they kind of they don't really know where to start, there, there's some questions that you outline in the the white paper to kind of uh, encourage and and to support that self um, reflection. Um, Daniel, perhaps you could kind of run us through those um, questions um, for, for the benefit of those that won't have read the paper yet. That was that was definitely a theme of the paper. I think as as people work through it, you'll see that we tried at each point to make sure that we did bring some quite tangible actions to this and, and ways to bring, as Ken said, a lot of what, what we're seeing in practice um, to life for those that are dealing with it. So, I mean, some of those questions build off that idea of, well, what does the next stage of my life look like? Painting that picture of the desired future state. Uh, it talks about, am I even interested in opening a new chapter? Again, to, to Ken's last point, what I want may be very different to, to what others are expecting me to want or even wanting me to want. And so how do I understand my 
continuing role within the business. Um, that idea of binary succession, I know we'll touch on it later on today, but that idea of I'm either in or I'm out, I'm either in charge or I'm nobody. Um, how do we move away from that as a, an assumption or a myth? Um, and then how can I apply my knowledge and experience in other areas outside of the family business? Uh, we're seeing this in the rise of family offices. Uh, we're seeing families build concurrent wealth outside their business. And even looking outside of that, getting involved in local community, mentoring, uh, even politics, finding ways to, to continue that, um, as Dennis mentioned, that bonus career. And so these are just a, a few of the questions um, that we've posed. I mean, one that sticks with me the most, which I've, I've had some great conversations with families around was, well, okay, what needs to be true in order for me to be ready to transition the business? And, and what are some of the either correct or incorrect assumptions that are being made about the business needs to be at a certain level or that the succession um, and the next generation need to have a certain level of experience or qualification. So starting to, to benchmark some of those through this self-reflection process, um, that was really the goal of some of these open questions to, to try and bring that out. And I guess the a blessing and a curse in, in terms of, particularly when we're talking about sort of family-owned businesses, is if you're working in a public sector that has a retirement age of 65 and you've got your red circle around the date in the calendar of your last day you get your carriage clock and off you go that that's a very definitive date to be able to go right this is when I, I need it it doesn't necessarily make the transition afterwards become easier but it's much more clear cut I guess the blessing and a curse in terms of the family business side of things is that it's more kind of spread out than that it's not a date necessarily ringed around the, the calendar and the, the process can take time and we're talking about the effort that's involved in in doing this as well what are some of your thoughts in terms of sort of beginning this process and and I, there's a, a chinese proverb i think the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago uh, the next best time is now is, is the same true of transition planning Definitely. I think we, we see that with that whole concept of, of constant communication. I mean, the the role of self-reflection can be then um, repurposed across the entire group where you've got that collective reflection. I mean, Stacey mentioned that idea of, of having that why, having that North Star, um, because as you mentioned, I mean, the average tenure of a family business CEO is six, seven times that of a, a non-family business CEO. And so having less um, fixed information leads to potentially more assumptions. And so that idea of, of starting this process early, um, we saw that even within the paper. We looked at this idea of regret. Um, and obviously, if you commence your reflection at the end of your journey, the ability to influence or change that is is more limited. And so part of what we uncovered here was that this self-reflection piece is not something to complete at the end of any stage. It's something that should be constant because having that more optimistic lens to it says, well, I can reflect on missed opportunities or missed chances and I can write those. 
And so I think it, it really hits to your point there, which is the earlier that we can start these conversations, that we can build this process. Um, it comes to a, another point, which I, I won't steal the thunder now, but around why we don't call it succession planning, um, because we are looking at continuity. We are looking at longevity. So I think that idea of, of starting early is, is a good one and, and something that a lot of families are starting to become, I think in my experience, a lot more proactive than historically um, we may have been. Could I, could I add, add something to that, Russ? Please, yeah. Well, in response to your question, why not set a date? <laughs> um, and, but set a date in the context of the reality of the demographics of your family. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, if you're of an age where retirement is front of mind, the, um, the possibility of that happening, the viability of that might be affected by the age of the next generation. If they're 19, 20, they might not be ready to make a commitment to a long-term career in the family business. But if you're sitting at 60, 70, 80 years old in the next generation of 40, 50, do you have a duty to them to start moving the dial because of their needs? It's not necessarily just about what you want. It's about what they need and what they want. So um, the setting of a date, I think, being a a practitioner at heart, is quite a good idea but you have to set a date that is relevant to the reality of the demographics of your family and i think as i said earlier as those become more complex and people have blended families and kids at different ages and stages of life that's not just as straightforward as we might think so yeah worth thinking about Yeah, so I and and I think this brings up a challenge for us as advisors um, uh, when we um, are you know we talk about oh we want to do um, we want to do succession planning we want to do it but our kids aren't ready or this isn't it and and what we need to help them understand is that that um, when you have anxiety about the future when you say the future I, I'm I'm afraid to let go you're not aware of that you're unconscious. And you tend to be reactive rather than proactive. So some of the things that people say was, my kids aren't ready, or I want to set up a trust, or I want to keep them, um, make them responsible, um, uh, you know, by, by creating restrictions on the wealth. Um, uh, I, I think of one elder that, that said to me, well, I'd like to retire, and of course um, I should retire, but my kids aren't ready. And I said, oh, um, tell me, what would you see if your kids were ready. And he said, well, they would be taking initiative, they would be taking responsibility, they would be starting new things. And I began to say, well, how do you allow them to do that? And what we found out is that his anxiety about it was making him stop them and tell them that they couldn't do anything and giving them that message. And so, of course, he would never see them being ready because he never allowed them to do it. And I think as as advisors, we have to help um, the elders see that they're anxious about the future and that they're, they're, they're doing things that are reactive rather than really allowing it to happen. So um, one of the things that, that we observe, for example, is that everybody says, I should have a transition plan, I should be looking ahead, I should be doing succession, but, and it's the but, uh, they're not ready, uh, I, I can't do it, it's not time, it's a crisis right now and I have to help with that. There's always a but, and um, and that's 
because of the anxiety of actually making it happen and moving into the unknown rather than the fact that, that all these things make it um, make you there be reason to put it off a little bit. Yeah, so I, I, it, it's, we have yeah, to help them face their anxiety. And also help the other generations in that discussion to understand that anxiety exists. It's not just the seniors' generation to fix that in their own head or heart. They are part of this network of relationships. So we need right. to figure out how we collectively can help them to address their needs and come up with something that is a workable solution. I think just everyone dealing with their own stuff in isolation of each other just doesn't, well, my experience, doesn't really get the thing moving. So uh, it's very, very important what you say, but I think the next gen, if I could use that phrase, should have a significant interest in how their seniors are coping and do their best to help. Well, it's, it's, it's a challenge. I just want to add, you know, one um, thing that, that comes up with that is, is that the next generation, they want to please their parents and they want their parents to see them as uh, having significance. And one of the challenges is, is that they're being nice and they're getting a message from their parents. Hey, I'm anxious about the future. Don't do anything. And so, for example, the next generation doesn't get together and have family meetings. And I say, and I ask them, why don't you do it? You're like 40 years old. Why don't you get together and start planning? They say, well, dad doesn't want us to do it. And I say, well, how old are you? Um, and it's like you don't need your father's permission in order to uh, begin to get together and talk about the next generation. And they're saying, well, he'll be upset. Yes, he'll be upset. But you can say, we know you'll be upset, but we're not going to, you know, we're not going to talk about firing you and we're not going to talk about why you should retire. We're really going to talk about what we want to do and what, what we see as the future and, and what are the things that we have to do to make the future. And, and I think the next generation is, um, is sometimes paralyzed or kept um, from doing what um, they, they should be doing and could be doing because of this this desire not to upset their parents. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And, and I want to, to go back, if we can, just to the topic of regret, because it's something that is, uh, it, something I'm passionate about, I passionately believe, is that life is not a rehearsal. We're here once and we get this shot at life once. And we're all kind of making it up as we go along. It's the first time we've ever done anything, really, in, in, in that sense. But, but in terms of the linking that with the longevity issue that we, we spoke about earlier is not only are we living longer, we're living more vital, healthy lives, which again, I think creates the potential to um, bust the myth that retirement has to be this kind of sedentary experience of sitting in a rocking chair with a pipe. It can be a very active and very um, uh, kind of empowering phase in our lives. And I think linking that back to the the um, sort of wanting to avoid regret. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Bronnie Ware, who was a palliative care nurse who researched with the patients that she was working with the top five regrets of the dying. Um, again, I can link that up in, in the show notes. But the, the results from that were, you know, nobody said, I wish I'd spent more time at work. As passionate as they might have been about that, it was... I wish I'd live a life that was true to myself, which again speaks to that um, element of self-reflection and understanding who it is we really are and what we can really be. And the the kind of that phase of our lives can be a really exciting point to embrace that, right? 
I think that ties to even um, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot's kind of definition of the third chapter um, and, and developing that compelling vision of the future. Um, and that, to your point, is a vision of progression and growth as opposed to demise. Um, I think back to the, the recent FFI conference um, where one of the speakers was talking about uh, aging is a mindset. And it was that whole idea of, well, how do we actually bring a positive and progressive and, and growth mindset to what, what she called that third chapter? But I guess what we're talking about is that life post um, 75, 80, post CEO, leader of the business. And to say, well, how do we actually avoid some of that regret um, by taking advantage of what we're seeing, which is, like you said, living longer, living healthier and having more opportunity. And so I think bringing that into the conversation and, and channeling that with purpose um, is, is what is producing the best results. One of the kind of common challenges that I guess we all face in, in the work that we do is the the fear of loss that people feel. You mentioned, Dennis, the anxiety around the future. And I think part of that is founded in this fear of loss. How important do you feel it is to kind of face up to that fear as, as part of a transition? Well, that's the anxiety and, and people don't want to feel anxiety. So they, they project it out onto other people and they say, well, this is a problem. So I think that, that loss is, uh, is something that, that um, we feel when, um, when we look ahead to this next chapter of life, um, we see it as a loss. I will be, I have run this business for 30 years and now I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose my status. I'm going to lose my, um, you know, role in the community. And so what we have to do is create next chapters. I think Dan, uh, Daniel was talking earlier about some of the things that people can do. Well, I could become a community leader. Um, one family that, um, that, I, uh, that I knew um, had a re strict retirement age at 60 for the family business. And this has been going on for three or four generations. And I was talking to one of the elders who's 88. And um, I said, well, gee, and he said, I retired at 60. And um, it's, gee, <laughs> what have you been doing for 30 years? And he said, well, we have another tradition in our family. And that, that when people retire at 60, there's a congressional seat in our uh, in, in our area, and uh, um, we uh, we go and we we go into Congress, and um, our role in Congress is that we do the jobs that nobody else wants to do because we're not ambitious, we're not planning for the future. So we go into Congress and we say, what are the the crappy jobs um, that need to be doing? And so we work in the post office uh, committee, and we work on the you know the public works and things like that. And we try to do something useful. And, um, and so he had been a congressman for, um, for 28 years after he retired from leading the family business. And I think finding um, a meaningful role um, is, is what the challenge is. And, and you don't just retire and find that role. You have to be, be thinking about it. Um, and and I, I think the mindset that, that I talk to families about is that you have to see um, that, that running the family business is a midlife activity. It's something to do from 40 to 60, 
That's when you're an operational leader. That's when you have a lot of energy. That's when you can deal with all the crises, things like that. And then when you get to be um, in your, into your later 60s, you want to have a more reflective. You want to become a mentor. You want to become a, a sage. You want to become a leader um, in, a, in a wider network. And so you have to see that um, the family business is, is something to do in the middle of your life, not for your whole life. If you've done something for 30 years and you run the family business, you have to ask yourself, why would I want to continue this for another 30 years? Why wouldn't I want to get rid of it and let my, my kids have a chance to run it and find something else to do? And, um, and, and that, I think that's the challenge, is to begin to change the mindset that running the business is the, the, is the be-all and end-all, and that's the goal, to saying that that's something to do at a certain stage of life, and then you want to do something else. And if you have that in your mind, you're much more likely to be able to, you know, kind of do an orderly, uh, respectful transition to the next generations in your family. I think, could I just ask a couple of brief comments there um, without repeating it, I hope, without repeating anything. I think on the point of regrets, I think sometimes you have to come to terms with them. I mean, if you regret not doing some things because you devoted all, all your waking hours to building your family's business, there's probably not all of those that can be now revisited. These are absences in your life caused by choices you made and you need to come to terms by that. Sometimes the desire to kind of wind the clock back and do the things that you might have done in your 40s now that you're in your 70s, that gets really confusing and very challenging. So, yeah, sometimes you have to acknowledge them and come to terms with them. I think also losses and fears are really laden words. Oh, they just make you bristle and kind of bring you out in a sweat. I think we could maybe help that conversation by saying, look, if you feel, so the, 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 the examples given loss of identity and status and even loss of economic security. So if you're being asked to stand down from the family business, then what we need to discuss is how do we uh, redefine these uh, needs in your life to ensure that you will have the status, identity and economic security you need to feel secure. Now, it might just not be doing what you've done today, but there could be other things. And Dennis, you mentioned coaching or joining other organizations or whatever it is, and also making sure that you feel you have enough money to look after your needs as you age for longer than your predecessors will have done. So how, how do we deal with that? Um, rather than pumping up the kind of negative emotion of loss and fear is to say, let's be practical and figure out what we as a family and as an enterprise can do to address these things, because that will help this process of transition to move forward by enabling that person, normally one of significant power, uh, to move forward. And without that movement, we are really marking time, having discussions perhaps, but not really getting anywhere. Yeah, thank you. And Ken, continuing on a point you were making earlier about the importance of kind of understanding what we're each going through during these transitions. One thing that struck me throughout the conversation so far around transitions is we haven't spoken about, nor am I suggesting we do, by the way, but we haven't spoken about any of the kind of technical stuff, the, the potential share transfers for different structures, for the, the kind of what we've been talking about is much more around the emotional elements of transitions 
and so I guess what role does empathy play in that? You, you touched on it earlier, but, but perhaps you could speak to that a bit more in terms of the role that empathy can play in a successful transaction uh, transition. Yeah, I think the um, I think also just for come on to that, those other topics are about the quotes hard stuff, the share classes, the tax plan. I think often they're a proxy for these discussions anyway. They're just being conducted under that. Uh, kind of heading because those are the topics that people feel worth uh, feel comfortable talking about but when we're talking about the transfer of ownership we're talking about the transfer of wealth and power and opportunity and status etc as well so yeah we get into those topics no matter where you know where we start but to your point about empathy um, or mutual sympathy I really feel as I probably come through in some of my comments we need to pump this up um, there's a real theme of individualism in these, and you, you mentioned it at the very outset. I want this, and my idea as to what to get what I want is that you should do something about it. So all I've asked you to do is change, which probably means giving up something that you want to get what I want. I just feel that these conversations can very easily descend into acrimony and accusations of selfishness. So you can reboot the argument or or, or the discussion. And so to give a practical example, using something that you said earlier, Dennis, if the next gen can get together, why don't they spend their time talking about what they think the seniors want and what they think they can do to help them get what they want? And when the seniors sit down to talk to whoever they're going to have a chat with, they should be thinking about what, how, how well do I understand what the next generation want and how they feel? And knowledge can help our understanding of that. And there's lots of knowledge, and some of it's been mentioned in passing, it's referenced in the white paper, around what, what we're likely to feel we need at certain stages of life in our young adulthood and mid-age and in our elder years. So we can use that knowledge to start understanding what the other people in this conversation are needing and figuring out how we can help them get there and uh, I think that helps the conversation not just in a kind of compassionate sense but in a very practical sense we can uh, we can all bring something to that conversation and we need everyone to bring something you can't just say well that's up to you chum you make your mind up I'll wait for you to make a decision you you just stalled everything at that point so when we get into that conversation with that degree of empathy or mutual sympathy for the interests of others, I think we start to really see the creativity coming through. Um, and I'm not saying that everyone will come up with suggestions that other people want to hear, but as long as they're coming up with suggestions, we've got something to talk about. Um, so I think it's a, um, a powerful uh, reservoir to that we can tap into for these for these discussions and i've i say that having tried to do it in practice i've done is at conferences and got each generation to talk about the interests of the others and it's astonishing what they come up with and it's just amazing to feel that afterwards they're going to sit down with their own families and have a better appreciation of what each other those whom they love or respect or at least they're related to are going to want out of this. And that's really what succession transitions is ultimately going to have to deal with. And then you can express it in a tax plan or a shareholders agreement and all that good stuff. But until we really hit these other 
fundamentals with some something like that infused with that sense of empathy uh, for the others who are part of this i think we struggle so i'd like to think that that in the white paper will help people to start approaching that with some imagination and just a quick just a quick thought about that that is so important for us to do as professionals to bring the generations together and that's one of the things that elders fear the most is listening to the next generation and the next generation fear is really telling the truth to their parents because they might um, uh, disappoint or hurt them or, or uh, challenge them unfairly. So it's, it's, it's uh, a lot of families um, do everything they can to resist getting together rather than feel comfortable. Let's get together. Let's talk. We're not making decisions. We're not, you know, we're not deciding the future, but we're sharing and getting to know each other, what, what we all want. Um, and, and to understand our differences. Yep. And if I could quickly add to that, one of the things that was really important to the four of us as we created this paper was to include lots of practical things that you could do as a family to make a difference. So um, along the lines of empathy, with permission from uh, David Gray, we included the Empathy Map Canvas, which is a really simple framework that makes this more practical and doable. And so building on Ken's example, it might be the rising generation putting themselves into the shoes of the senior generation and, and going through that empathy map canvas. Who are we emphasizing with? Who are we empathizing with? What do they need to do? What do they see? What do they say? What do they do? What do they hear? And then what do they think and feel? What are the pains and what are the gains? And I think it's important to remember that, you know, business owners are typically doers, right? They're very busy. They're very active. They're used to doing and accomplishing a lot. And so to really slow the whole family system down and get into that more reflective space, uh, I keep coming back to the saying of you don't learn from experience. You learn from reflecting on experience. And so kind of that quiet, reflective time and some of these frameworks that allow us to get up on the balcony and take that reflective time are, are important. Yeah, and if I could ask something there, picking up on the points that have been made, and Dennis, you said to some families, yeah, you're right, some families find this really difficult. You don't have to talk to your own family about this. They're, the needs of people at different stages of adulthood are well documented and it would be really great to think that next gen programs could include imagining based on that knowledge what your senior generation are feeling and thinking and wanting and to speak to other people of your generation so that they can add their thoughts and creativity to, to aid your understanding and in the room next door the senior generation are doing exactly the same thing talking to their peers about the need of next generation generally so that they can gain a better understanding and maybe that would help start the conversation because uh, yeah it can be tough just to sort of descend into that type of conversation with your relatives but you don't need to always just do it that way yeah and i think we uh, um, might all advocate as well that if it's not something that you can necessarily feel comfortable doing uh, of your own back to to utilize um somebody to, who's able to facilitate that who's able to help guide that as well because 
um, it, it can be quite intimidating just to go, right, guys, we're going to sit down and I've heard this podcast and so we're going to sit in separate rooms and um, talk about this stuff. It, it can be something that can be very beneficial to have facilitated, right? Yes, but let's not be, you know, we, we are we are all practitioners here. So, yeah, of course, we're going to say that's a great idea. But, you know, DIY this a bit. You need to do more than any of us could ever do for you. And the idea is to give you the skills and knowledge to be able to understand these predicaments and figure out solutions. So I would encourage both, you know, yeah, get good help, but there's good ideas, including those in this white paper that I'm hoping will be of practical help to many families to get on with this. So that brings to a close part one of this conversation with Dennis, Ken, Daniel and Stacey. Part two will be released very shortly where we continue the conversation and delve into the white paper that they have co-authored. As a reminder, you can find this at the Ultra High Net Worth Institute website, which is uhnwinstitute.org and we will provide a link in the show notes too. So part two on its way, and until then, take care. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you found the show helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, and remember to subscribe to our newsletter. If what I've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business, I can help. I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.